0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-hosts today, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, both professors of statistics, a combination of the three of us, and Cade Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. Guys, it's uh, great to be here. We're here on Super Bowl week we have a great guest Sam Monson from PFF in the second half of our show so obviously we're going to talk a lot about football in both in the first half of the show but also in the second half but guys i thought since it's us we're the hall, we're the baseball guys we love baseball let's take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the baseball hall of fame um and my question obviously we've talked about the last couple of weeks cuz we know that three people just got into the hall of fame Um, But I wanted to talk to you guys about what, you know, I always call it the first tier of the Hall of Fame. And I'd love to get it. Shane, we'll start with you. Then we'll go Adi to you. Who do you think is the next tier one Hall of Famer to get in? Because in my view, it's nobody that got in this year. Nobody this year is anywhere near a tier one Hall of Famer. Shane, let's start with you. And then Adi, I'd love your thoughts.
1: Well, I mean, I I guess if you really like obvious tier one, the next to get in is probably Pujols. Right, I mean, like that's you know kind of uncontroversially tier one. And I'll leave I'll leave uh, audience to meet as well, but Ichiro would be one where one could kind of we could argue, uh, but I think holes yeah. is really the next like unambiguously tier one uh, Hall of Famer coming up. Coming yeah,
0: thirty two hundred hits and seven hundred home yeah. runs, and one of the you know if you look at his certainly his first ten years, almost the grunt of the greatest first ten years in the history of baseball. Like you'd have to put him up against like. You know, Frank Thomas, Lou Gehrig, you know, Ted Williams, Stan Musial. And mean, we're talking about a great- And I mean,
1: Itro, Itro's first 10 years in MLB also really stands out. It's very unique. I mean, he averaged something like 220 hits a year. You're yeah, right. Way
0: over 2,000 hits. It's
1: in his ridiculous. First but then he had this other 10 years of kind of part-time— like, if you kind of look at his sort of seasonal averages and you use all of Etro's seasons, you know, then you right. kind of start getting almost a Miguel Cabrera yeah. kind of effect.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, it's uh, I mean, Pujols, of course. Uh, um, Ichiro is interesting because in one dimension he's unbelievable—that uh, the ability to get hits, right? right. And that's partly because he didn't walk so much. I mean, astoundingly because he didn't walk so much and he had this infield hit ability. Um, I wouldn't say, considering he spent time in Japan and in the second half of his career was was weaker. I'm not sure he's first tier. I Definitely agree with you play. actually. I hate to
0: say it. It. Yeah, yeah. I hate I mean, to say it, Adi, so, yeah. but I agree. But yeah, gonna, I
2: mean, I, I take so. So I, I, I mean, and so before I, I think we could. I don't, are there any other hitters, position players, who are even close?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, okay. So, um, we uh, just to make it a distinction, we're talking kind of our own sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. ambiguous first tier, not like who's going to be first ballot or not, because I think that's no, 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 no. First yeah. first our first tier. Trout, Trout is going to be first, obviously. Oh, first oh sure, year.
2: okay. I'm, he's so far away from retirement. I'm not. Yeah, saying...
1: no, no, no. so, I mean, <laughs> of, of ones that have already retired, who oh, are close, not, or close, Or yeah, or are close. I think it's only Pujols. I mean, Trout's like 30. Let's give him, let's, let's let let them let them have Five. his you realize Ta- Trout already has like 50, only 15 more or less than Pujols. Yeah, I know, I know. It's but the back, the back crazy. House. Yeah,
0: yeah. But so the person sort of I, I would name Benjamin. is Clayton Kershaw. All right, so uh,
2: so no. so I want to before because I, I don't right, even I, think
1: he's the best he, current pitcher
2: for Hall so, of Fame. Um, so Eric, we got to decide when you talk tiers. Is this a gut feeling or is this a percentile? What are you doing? Because if you had to name the top ten starting pitchers, or and you probably wouldn't consider a reliever other than Mariano in in the top in tier one. Right. Is it ten of them since? Or how many are in the top tier among pitchers? Is it yeah,
0: five or, 10 that. or So for me, pitchers. Um, Let's ignore that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens would have been, obviously. Yeah, a Greg Maddox, Roger Maddux Clemens. Is a, Greg Maddox is 100% a top-tier pitcher. Yeah. Uh, tier one pitcher. We, can,
1: we can name way more than 10 pitchers that are better than Clayton Kirkshaw. Yes. Obviously. Well, it's obviously
2: so. So, so. so I'm going to say the one who's
1: closest to top-tier is actually Berlin. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I mean, they're very similar in terms of kind of career war. Verlander's got way more of the postseason heroic thing, which I yep. think – Verlander, I agree with Adi. I, I think he is the closest to a first-tier pitcher we're currently watching. Hmm. Um, right. But you, you, you it kind of needs that kind of postseason heroics even to get right. him there. Because I think he – right. I think i looked it up. He's like 26th all-time among pitchers in war.
2: Yeah, and so I think thing, Kershaw is like thirty about or it. something. So I, I'm actually using my own statistic, the, the great oh. war. And which which is a blend of um, uh, career and peak, which is kind of how you think of, uh, you know, career. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. otherwise you just commute. I mean, like Ryan, what he was he was tier one anyway. Um, but although people really, you know, it's funny because a lot of people don't like uh, uh, Nolan Ryan as a as a as a top tier one pitcher because of so many losses. Steve Carlton, uh, Tom Seaver, um, Steve Carlton, Tom Siever, Pedro, Jim Palmer. I mean, what do you think? Jim Palmer. Come on, tier one. Right. So Verlander is the closest in that. And he was mm-hmm. really dominant pitcher for four years, five years. Verlander was the dominant pitcher in the majors. Do
0: we think that the current state of baseball, I think I'll make a statement and you can just agree or disagree. And why don't we start Audi with you? And then we'll go to Shane on this one. Mm-hmm. Um The current way pitchers are used make it less likely that we'll see tier one pitchers going forward, but the way that hitters are swinging for home runs and everything, and the focus on, you know, hitting the long ball, maybe it's more likely that we'll see a tier one home run hitter and the way longevity is in baseball. Let me see if you agree with either of those statements, Adi, and then we'll go to Shane. All right,
2: I'll start with me. Uh, So I definitely agree with your statement about starting pitchers. They are, I mean, the winners this year are are between six and seven. Mm -hmm. The winner last year was around six. Both Snell and Cole were at 6.2 WAR. Um, they don't pitch enough. They go five, six innings. They have 28 starts, 30, 30 starts. You just can't. And the backup, the backups are awesome, right? So you know, WAR is above replacement. So, you, know, you move up replacement, you're just not. I mean, so maybe that's that's unfair to them that because the the bench is so deep. But I just don't think we're going to see the dominant starting pitchers like the tier ones anymore.
1: What about? Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll, let, okay. I'll, I'll maybe I'll comment on that, and then we can come back to hitting. Sure. I, I totally agree. Man. I think you know it's going to be interesting how we define pitching going forward for the Hall right. of Fame because we're not going to have to any of these kind of like you know is it just going to be guys who amassed innings of really good strike? I don't even know. I mean, because just for perspective, again, you know, I mean. First tier, even even Hall of Fame now. You know we can. You know people are starting to talk like you know Kershaw, Scherzer, Greinke. CC I think is a Hall of Famer. Sure. Mostly on the post. Again, he gets uh-huh. in on the postseason heroics more than anything. He's around sixty WAR or sixty one WAR, and again yeah. that's really low. Like you know Verlander's at like, it's like second at,
2: base level, right? <laughs> I,
1: right. I, that's at the edge of of kind of like the Hall of Fame. I think would be CC. Like for example, Hamels is right below him, but I don't think we will make it. No. Um, there's no other – and CeCe's, I think, 55th all time in terms of pitchers in, in the rankings. There's nobody – there's no current pitcher even in the top 150. Yeah. Yeah, so CeCe well, – Cole seen- has 40 wars and is probably – he's – Kara Cole's is the only chance we have probably for a Hall of Fame pitcher in the kind of, like, next – you know, like, that we're looking at right now.
2: Hmm. Listen, uh, before we do – start, I have Andy Pettit at around 70, a career war. Yeah, Just- yeah. yeah just he doesn't make it cuz he never was the dominant pitcher in the league
0: well yeah i think he, using, he's, he's he also he's admitted to using ped
2: uh well no i mean if you ha- if you read the podcast by Malcolm Gladwell you got to forgive andy pettit i mean it's a great podcast well, and okay, even beyond that just... I,
1: I do i do think if we want to continue to acknowledge Pettit's getting into the hall of fame eventually i mean it'll be veterans committee whenever. we're going to yeah. need to add you know i, I think there's going to be a lot of pitchers that get revisited yeah. As we start hitting, like, what about like, you know, what if 10 years from now, like literally we look ahead and there's nobody, there's no starting pitchers left right. that could even possibly yeah. sniff it. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so I the pitchers, I think is even more dramatic. What, what, Hitters, Shane
0: saying, what Shane's saying to our listeners here in Morton Moneyball is in 10 years when I'm, in my, you know, in my sixties, I may be pretty lonely in Cooperstown if I'm expecting a bunch of pitchers <laughs> to be showing up. I might be. There. <laughs> Who's going to be there with me in Cooperstown? That's the question. Ah, uh,
1: man, Paul Goldschmidt. <laughs> Paul Goldschmidt will be there. Ah, there we like go. That. So, Audie, yeah.
0: any thoughts on hitters? On hitters? Or anybody, you know, anybody? Um, today I'm not sure to... we're
2: gonna. I mean, I think we're gonna see more. We'll see plenty of hitters because of. I mean, they get gaudy stats. They and they pick up big WAR. I mean, because they're that's they kind of know how to milk it. I mean, I think. Um, milk it I mean I'm not sure they're doing the wrong thing they're doing the right thing um, I mean are you wondering where they're going to more first tier I think first tier is just still plenty special um, and uh, I think we're just going to see them just at, I mean we have some potential candidates like uh, from the youngsters who are amazing like right? Mookie Betts
1: I think is probably the best trajectory uh, I mean he's going to have to do it for a while longer Not even for first tier I mean Mookie no, Betts no, no, no. Mookie Betts already has
0: more, well, more the than Machado. How many more years does he need to do what he did for Shohei to be in the Hall of Fame?
2: Oh, Shohei in the Hall of Fame?
0: Probably about five, maybe four. <laughs> I was thinking at most. I yeah. was thinking, you know, from a war perspective, Shane, where is he right now? Just yeah,
1: just, well, I mean, so he's got he – he would be an interesting case. Anything. Let's say he, like, kind of has – like, he doesn't have, like, a crazy – like, he's obviously not going to have counting stats or anything like that, Oh, right? no, no, yeah. no, no. But – but yeah, I mean, you know, under the it'll definitely sort of be sort of a peak argument, but he's obviously doing something that nobody's done in like a hundred years. Yeah. It's crazy, right? I mean, honestly, just just keep, show us that you can keep it going. Like you said, yeah, two, two, three more, four years. But I'm years, right yeah. that he's not
0: pitching next year, right? Just hitting. No, he has no arm, right? right yeah, right. he's, uh, uh,
1: I mean, That's by pressure. design, I think they he's only, I think, DHing next year. That's what I thought so too. I think
0: he's only hitting. Well, guys, we could spend more time. We have about 10 or 15 minutes left. I want to switch a little bit to football, but maybe, you know, maybe just I'll call it some rapid fire. I wanted to get your thoughts on a few questions I thought about. And well, again, we'll be talking in the second half of our show with Sam Monson about the game itself. Um, Shane, in the the pre-work, I I wrote some questions and there was one that intrigued you. So I wanted to ask you and then we'll move over to Adi. Um, I don't remember the last time a defensive player was the MVP of the Super Bowl. Um, it might well be, I'm pretty sure, in one of the Bucs Super Bowls, I think it was Dexter Jackson. I mean, that's 20-something years ago. But I, there's, I wanna... there, there's a more recent
1: case. Say it again? There is a more recent case. Von okay. Miller in 2016. But...
0: Okay, but what would it take for it not to be, whether it's, you want know, to say, Mahomes or Purdy or Kelsey or McCaffrey, like what would a defensive player have to do to Be the MVP of the Super Bowl,
2: yeah. Can I answer that? I, I yeah, would just sure. you've go got to get lucky that there's got to be a low offensive game. <laughs> I mean, without an offensive hero, that's the first thing. If there's an offensive hero, forget it. And if that's not the case and it's a low scoring game, then you might talk,
1: yeah. No, exactly. I think, uh, yeah, Audi, Audi gave a necessary condition, not sufficient. Um, not sufficient. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's no real sufficient, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, I get you know. Um, I'll tell you what could be a sufficient considered a sufficient condition, but it didn't happen. Um, I think you have to have it is you can't just have standout performance. Like so, for example, Von Miller's stats in 2016 when he won it, he had uh two and a half sacks, six tackles, two forced fumbles, two quarterback hurries. Great game, but you yeah. know not 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 something you'd kind of look up in a record book or anything like that it has to be kind of the confluence of several things like audie mentioned you can't have a standout qb performance i mean the default is going to be quarterbacks so you need not a standout qb performance on either side yep. um
0: does the defensive player
1: need to score well, I mean, no, Von Miller
0: didn't score for No, example. I mean, I don't, I'm just saying that would help, though, right?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, if the def- you need both that kind of not standout performance by quarterbacks, you also, I think, need the defense performance to be kind of rather relatively like standout relative to the rest of the defense. Right. And be kind of game changing the way Von Miller was game changing. Another recent example that I think could have been was that Pats. You know, the other kind of defensive, sort of not standout QB performance was that Pats Rams court a uh, Super Bowl from a few years ago. I honestly think Stefan Gilmore could have gotten Super Bowl MVP because he had kind of, the, you know, the game-sealing interception, but they yeah. gave it to Edelman because he had, like, over 100. Even in that case, there was still standout offensive performance that they deferred to instead. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, another one, I mean, if you wanted to find MVP on, like, made the play that changed the game, you know, game the most. I mean, Malcolm Butler, like, a few years <laughs> ago. I mean, that's got to be the number one. But like, that, he won the game for the team. But that was, like, maybe his second play of the game. So it's like, could you make him MVP? Probably not.
0: Probably not. So let me ask you guys another question uh, related to the game. Um, since, in my mind, at least four – well, they play 60-minute football games, not less – um, in my mind, San Francisco has been outplayed in both games for a majority of the game. Uh, Kansas City certainly beat Baltimore. Uh, Buffalo could have won that game, was certainly leading for a good portion of that game. Um, how confident are you that these are the best teams that are in the Super Bowl? And what I mean by that is, um, let's imagine we started the playoffs again and ran the entire same Brackets going forward. What do you? What fraction of the time do you think these would be the two teams in the Super Bowl? Relatively I low, say, probability. low probability.
2: Low. I'd say. I. I'm going to throw it something in the order of about 20, 20 to twenty five percent.
1: I guess what lower than that. I mean, lower. I, I. mean, honestly, I kind of like at at the conference championship level. Like, I, I. I still think you know, if we ran this simulation many, many times, that Baltimore KC. Like I didn't come out of that being like, oh well, there's no way Baltimore could have won that game. I, I mean, I think that's a that was a coin flip game. It definitely went for Kansas City, but that's a coin
0: flip game. Yeah, if um, the guy doesn't fumble the ball right at the goal line, if if you know uh, Lamar, Jackson, Lamar just Jackson has a better game, Lamar, a kick, you know,
1: we get a right. better sample, of Lamar Jackson, etc. I mean, there's a lot. So so if you regard the cha- conference championships as near coin flips,
0: you're that's kind of 25% already five percent right there, right?
1: Right, exactly. I mean, you're kind of you have to almost kind of guarantee San Francisco in case he even made it to the conference championship in every simulation to kind of get that high of a percent, in my opinion. But um, I mean, I do think you know, if I was running the simulation, it's not like every game in the playoffs is a coin flip. I do think these last couple have basically been it. But like, you know, I think, you know, that Kansas City-Miami game in the cold, assuming it's the same condition, you know, we have the same weather. I mean, I think that was like 80 to 20 or something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. So guys, let me ask you another question. Um, If I showed you a set of statistics after the game, what statistics would you be looking at? Besides, obviously, I'm not going to give you the score. What statistics would you be looking at that you think would be most, Adi, we'll start with you, would be most predictive of, yep, I've got, you know, with high confidence, I think that was the team that won the game.
2: So the tricky, and, part- and, and ones
0: that aren't tautologically true, you know.
2: Right, right, right. You like points, right? Um, so it's a tricky business because when you're in the lead, you start doing things. And then when you're in behind, you start doing things. So you can't look at like running average and all these things, it, It's they're totally confounded. So I'm gonna go with turnovers. What do you think?
1: Yeah, turnover, turnover, turnover differential is going to be my answer. Yeah, because difference. it kind of, I think it takes, uh, it's the one that try, you know, because most of it, that's the one that I think captures the variance of the game the most, basically.
2: Right. I mean, so it's funny because you could think that it's going to be like run, and, run per, you know, average uh, yards per run or some sort of average yards per pass or total yards passing or None. Of, I mean, the problem, and I don't think I, I'm going to go with turnovers. That's my it's guess. Time.
0: We've never talked about this on the show. This is very interesting. So you would agree. Turnovers is not a modern stat. It, it's been computed for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll make a statement and then you guys shred me to pieces, but this is what I get to do when I host here on Morton Moneyball. <laughs> um, all the traditional stats. Those are the ones that would come up first. All these new advanced metrics we come up with, no way would you name those. Turnovers, time of possession, total rushing yards, total passing yards, you know, yards per attempt. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm making a statement and then you can shred me. These are the really predictive ones. All us statisticians have added in the last 10, 15 years are these advanced ones that add prediction at the periphery.
2: Okay, so I'll just respond without giving a full answer and then Shane can can tack on. We're looking for a team stat and I think we don't really spend that much time analytically talking about a team stat. We do a lot of a lot a lot of work in football and individual assessment because that's what's hard. Um, I don't think for the most part there's been I mean maybe I'm wrong and Shane and we can call some experts um, might have some glosses but I think a lot has to do with the fact that I'm thinking of a team stat and I don't even know very many analytics team
1: stats, right? Yeah, and I mean, I mean, the challenge was, I think, to come up with a single, a, a single team level statistic, and I do think I kind of just to piggyback on what Audie was talking about. I think most of the kind of way analytics is kind of forwarding our understanding of football is kind of at the more kind of micro level, either evaluating the performance of individual players or individual, you know, individual decisions within the game, etc. And we're, you know, we're kind of like all, all, you know, I, I so to a certain extent, if I. I think the analytics helps us understand kind of like, you know, kind of the partial effect in many, you you know, we're kind of grinding down to the partial effect of different aspects of the game in specific contextual situations. What you asked for, though, is like the opposite end of the spectrum is, you know, what's what's the one variable, the one statistic I get to tell you that has the biggest kind of marginal correlation with outcome? Um, It's a different it's just a kind of a different challenge, I guess.
0: So, guys, we only have about two minutes left. I'll ask each of you. I'll start with you, Adi. What's your prediction for the game, and um, what do you think will be – like, do you think it will be a close game? What do you think will be the deciding factor?
2: Shoot. I think I, the deciding factor is we're gonna, whether we're going to get playoff Mahomes or regular season Mahomes. That's my prediction. Um, I'm going to bet – I'm going to actually take the contrary, and I'm going to bet we're going to get regular, se- regular season Mahomes – and San Francisco is going to take it. What the hell?
0: All right. All right. And Shane, what do you think? I
1: love it, Audie, because you know that that that's what I would be that that's what I'll be cheering for. I think Kansas. <laughs> I, I, I think Kansas City uh, wins. I think they will play their usual uh, brand of playoff football, which is relatively mistake free. San Francisco will make a few more mistakes. I think it'll be close, but I think uh, I think Kansas City will uh, win again.
0: And I'll I'll take a slightly different perspective, which is, I think this year what I've seen is if both teams play their absolute best, I think San Francisco's the better team. However, I don't think that's what we're going to see on Sunday. I think somehow, some way, Kansas City's going to figure out how to win this game. And I will be not disappointed because I, I like Patrick Mahomes, but I, I just feel like this will be one of those – super. like, I always felt, and maybe Shane will correct me, but, like, except – I don't even know in the Falcons Super Bowl. I mean, the Falcons could have easily won that game. It doesn't mean they were the better team in that. It doesn't mean they were the better team. Like, I, it's hard for me to think about a Brady Super Bowl that he won, and I'm like, wow, he didn't really deserve that one. As a matter of fact, I could argue he deserved some of the ones he lost, too. Yeah. Um, and so I, I will just feel, though, that this one – I don't want to say gifted – But, wow, Lamar Jackson had to have a really bad game for them to lose that game. And, you know, uh, uh, Josh uh, Allen, you know, if he had played mistake-free, I think Buffalo wins that game, too. So Mm -hmm. I almost feel like, I don't want to say it was given to Mahomes, but, uh, you know, in some ways it was. Well, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Um, We have Sam Monson from PFF joining us in the second half. So, guys, everyone stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports and statistics and sometimes even business collide. Uh, This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Shane Jensen. Uh, For a lot of the show, we've been joined by our co-host, Adi Weiner. Um, Shane, I've always said one of the great things about doing Wharton Moneyball, it's hard to imagine for almost 10 years now is the guest that we have on the show who can tell us about the application of analytics directly in the field. And certainly there's no one better than our longtime guest, uh, Sam Monson. Uh, Sam, for those that don't remember, Sam joined PFS Pro Football Focus as one of their core members. Uh, He's now the lead NFL analyst, co-host of PFF NFL Podcast and the PFF NFL Daily. Um, He's a great follow on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. Uh, So, Sam, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball.
3: No, thanks for having me and appreciate the uh, the wonderful intro. Oh,
0: well, it's great. Um, obviously, I'm sitting here. We're both Shane and I are both sitting here in Philadelphia. But as you told us off air, you're sitting there on radio row, on media row at the uh, Super Bowl. So in Las Vegas. So why don't you give us first a sense about let's start with the analytics community. How does the analytics community? How are you thinking about the upcoming game? I mean, how are you thinking this is two evenly matched teams with high uncertainty? I think a lot of people thought maybe San Francisco was rated higher in the regular season. Just how are you thinking about this game from a purely analytics perspective?
3: Yeah, it's interesting because you know we we're looking at this game, and the, the chiefs are underdogs again, um, and yet we've just seen evidence of kind of what happens when the chiefs are underdogs, right they They go out there and they show so now you're sort of looking at this, and if you were looking at the totality of the evidence, you would say, yeah, these are either evenly matched teams or the line is correct and, and San Francisco is the better team. Um, but so what you have to sort of ask yourself is do we want the most information possible? Do we want the largest sample size we have, or do we actually believe that playoff Kansas City is a different team than than the regular season? Because the playoff Chiefs, the playoff version of Mahomes has been a different player and a different enterprise entirely so you're you're kind of look I think that is the big question that we're we're grappling with was you know we all know that the larger the sample size the better the data and the more you want to gravitate towards that but it does kind of look like not just the chiefs but this is I think kind of a a a genuine sign of greatness that is difficult to comprehend and and, uh, and articulate Jordan Tom Brady you know, Patrick Mahomes now, it does seem that when the lights go on, they are able to change and transform their game and bring it to a different level. And it's really hard to accurately quantify that because obviously the sample size shrinks way down and, and it's it's difficult to say is that noise or is it really what he's he's able to do?
0: Yeah, Shane, just before I turn it over to you, just what Sam is talking about, which is a problem that we all deal with all the time in statistics, is if you believe really that there's a let's call it a regime change between the regular season and the and the playoffs, then the regular season data is a different regime. We could call it whether it's old data, irrelevant data, and therefore now all we have is six years of playoff Mahomes. So instead of having maybe 100 games for Mahomes or 100 plus, we now have 20 games. So now we have a much smaller sample size. So I just wanted to point out to our listeners here on What Moneyball the problem Sam's talking about, he could be talking about he's trying to infer... I don't know, advertising effectiveness or price changes, and there's, you know, one regime and another regime, you'd love more data, but you also want the data to be relevant to the problem you're having. So I just want to point out to our listeners, this is a very broad problem.
1: And I guess my question is, like, you you know, because you obviously look, I think, at his performance in a more fine-grained way than we do. Is Mahomes actually, like, is there an actual differential in terms of his own kind of in-game performance? I mean, he's able, obviously, it's, it's obvious that, being able to perform at least the same in the playoffs is already an achievement that most great even great quarterbacks aren't able to do, you know, because you're, you're going up against the best teams in, in high-pressure situations. But is it something beyond just the fact that he's able to continue his great performance against good teams, or is he actually doing something different in the playoffs fundamentally?
3: No, he does. And it's one of the most interesting things that for his career, he has a playoff turnover-worthy play rate of 1.7%. So he becomes that that would lead the league in terms of the lowest turnover worthy play rate, Uh, how often you put the ball in harm's way, regardless of whether a DV actually catches it or drops it, um, how likely you are to create a play that is worth a turnover, should be a turnover. 1.7% would lead the league as the best rate in the NFL more often than not. There are some years, you know, last year, I think Justin Herbert was at 1.6, but generally speaking, that would be the best rate in the NFL. That is his career playoff turnover-worthy play rate. And it's it's like a percentage point better than his regular season turnover-worthy play rate. This year, um, forget the big mistakes, the really big glaring ones, the turnover ones, just how often he gets a negative grade of any description. So you miss a receiver by a yard. It's a harmless play, but it's a negative in our system. You get a negative grade for that. Um, he has the lowest uh, negatively graded play rate in the NFL, 10 point something percent. In the playoffs, it's dropped down to six point something. So he's already the best quarterback in the NFL at how often he gets a negative grade, which we found is one of the most stable, sticky metrics for any quarterback anyway. And he takes that once you get to the playoffs and he makes it even better. So this idea of how- I assume this mom, also,
0: Sam, that that's correlated with winning. I mean, you could find lots yeah. of sticky metrics that have nothing to do with winning. Right. So you have kind of a two-pronged requirement. It's actually something that's sticky, enduring, and it's actually predictive of winning.
3: Exactly. And I think it's part of what it's, what explains, you know how does he keep winning all these games? Well, it's because you get to the playoffs and he does change his game fundamentally, not necessarily in a really obvious way, but in a way that definitely has an impact in the bottom line and winning and losing games. And therefore, you know, Mahomes is on his way if he wins this weekend to winning 50% of the Super
2: Bowls by the time he's been started. Do you guys uh, um, at PFF have, or just you personally, have any probability model that allows us to get me some sense of the distance between playoff Mahomes and, regular season Mahomes on a standardized scale. Yeah. I have just no feeling for it, right? So obviously players vary a lot. We only have, you know, have 20 games as playoffs. Is there some kind of metric? I mean, we tend well, to let get me better ask. Better, let me right?
0: ask Adi's question. I love yeah. Adi's. Let me ask in a different way. Let's say, I, I love the following counterfactual, and Adi, if this is not what you meant, please correct yeah. me. I know All you right. will. Let's say non-playoff Mahomes played in the playoffs and played the games he had played. What would his record have been? How many Super Bowls would he have had? Like that's a common metric. Let's look at his right. observed performance and let's say non-playoff Mahomes was in those games. Do we have a prediction of what the expected less number of wins is or Super Bowls? Any thoughts? That would be a that would be a common metric.
2: That's a yeah. different question that I asked though. I will be I will say it's a good one, but it's different and I mean let me just focus you I, I mean uh, on my question before you get to Eric's which really, es- you could answer it almost in a, in a permutation type style way of thinking about it, right? Meaning you could label tw- uh, 20 games playoffs and 100 games, if that's how many he's played in outside of the playoffs, just approximately, um, not playoffs. And uh, you have a grade or some kind of score for each, each game. And you might ask yourself, what's the distance between, what's the distribution of, say, 20 randomly picked games? and then find out where the, tw- the the 20 playoff ones are on that scale that would be actually a fun project i mean i wonder whether students could do it if you haven't done it to give you a sense of how deviant these 20 games are from his original 100 if you if you don't have an answer which you probably don't you have some flavor for it like how you know how many standard deviations would be a, a model based way of of measuring that uh, is playoff homes from ordinary mahomes
3: yeah we we haven't an- dove too deeply into it at all um you know in addition to all the problems we've already talked about about how you sort of dive into all that stuff there's also the fact that year on year each one of these playoff teams is different the supporting cast is different you know the defense he's playing is different it's it's not a constant right it's not a control sample size for just the only variable being different being playoff versus regular season so all we've done is a very surface level look at you know what is this pff grade uh, playoffs versus regular season, stuff like the turnover-worthy plays we talked about before, that drops a, a full percentage point. That's a significant jump from it would he's on the better side of the NFL on that, but he's he's usually not the first, second, third quarterback in the NFL in terms of risk-averse uh, play uh, and turnover-worthy plays. When he gets to the playoffs, he becomes basically the best quarterback in the NFL at avoiding those plays. So it, it's definitely not a, a, a thing we really – uh, created a, a, a full look at the picture on.
1: Yeah, I guess a fur. i I'll maybe comment on it further a further complication on that permutation analysis is the idea that you know I mean not Mahomes in a vacuum. Obviously, he's also got a great coaching staff. And, you know, kind of schemes and schemes and, and and kind of game plans that evolve as the season goes on. And so under that, permuta- that permutation sort of analysis would assume that somehow, you know, we're holding scheme constant or something like that. Whereas, you know, again, you could imagine a world where the Chiefs, you know, know they're going to the playoffs and hold out kind of, you know, make sure that they have their best plays and best schemes and, you know, best ways of making Mahomes excel. Into the playoffs, you know, and it's hard to kind of deconvolve those, I feel like.
3: And then the sort of flip side working against that is generally speaking, the deeper any team goes into the playoffs, the more injured and banged up and the personnel is changing. Right. like The the team in week 20 is going to be significantly weaker from a personnel standpoint than the team in week Mm -hmm. one, by and large. Right. Everybody's healthy to start the season. Teams get banged up. And usually the, the healthier teams are the ones that make it deep into the playoffs but they're still ravaged by injuries. I mean, you know, AOC championship game, Kansas City just lost Charles Amede, who's a, a big part of their defensive line. He's not a factor anymore in the Super Bowl.
0: So Sam, Sam can I let me ask you, there is a, um, while well, we've talked for the first 11 minutes here. And by the way, this we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brathow. I'm here with my co-host today, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us, and Cade Massey are here every week on Morton Money Bowl. We're talking to Sam Monson, sends the lead NFL analyst and co-host for PFF NFL Podcast and PFF NFL Daily. Um, we could spend all the time we have talking about Mahomes, but there is actually a quarterback on the other side who many people would have argued for a while during the season was looking like the MVP of the season. So how are you guys at Pro Football Focus viewing Brock Purdy? Let's remember... In his first two years, I have to think you probably know exactly his one loss record, I'm making it up. I don't know, twenty and three of or twenty whatever it is. He hasn't started two full seasons because he's had some injuries, but he's also made it to two NF I mean, he made it to the NFC championship game last year. Obviously he got injured during the game and basically didn't play any of the game and they couldn't throw the ball. So the you know, the Eagles may have won anyway. But I mean, he's had a remarkable two first seasons. How do you guys at pro football focus grade Brock Purdy?
3: Yeah, he's he's the classic um, sort of problem of perception, right? Like he's in this world of no nuance and black or white and one extreme or the other. He's either a fraud, a product of Shanahan's system, does you know barely deserves to be there, and we're we're seeing him exposed in the playoffs, or he's the MVP. He's you know the next Tom Brady, the next Joe Montana, and the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And you know, Brock pretty. I think for a while was building a fairly legitimate MVP case this, but part of that was because nobody had a great MVP case this season. It was a weird year where, you know, just as somebody started to emerge as a clear MVP, they had a bad game that almost became disqualifying. And that seemed to happen to everybody except Lamar Jackson. And then his sort of disqualifying game came in the playoffs after the point where the MVP has already been voted on, you know? So I think Purdy was starting to build that case. And he, it doesn't mean that you sort of say none of the other stuff is real, right? He's clearly benefiting from a Shanahan offense that is the current um, meta offense in the NFL. It, you know, I think Shanahan offense quarterbacks were one, two, three in yards per attempt this season. The top three guys in the league were running some variant of that offense, Houston, Miami, and San Francisco nick mullins has the same career average yards per attempt as aaron Rodgers. we know that that offense is you know it produces offense it creates beneficial throws and if you just take what's there you will have impressive stats across the board um he also has george kittle brandon Ayuk, debo samuel uh christian mccaffrey in the backfield trent williams at left tackle like the supporting cast is fantastic as well these are real things too um but it doesn't mean that he's also not bringing things to the table and Where I think he becomes a a fantastic fit for this system is Brock Purdy's biggest strength, I believe, is the late in the down, improvisational, uh, ad-libbing ability. So right as Shanahan's offense runs out of answers is where Brock Purdy's biggest skill set comes into play. So I think the combination of the two is actually more powerful, more potent, and more effective than the sum of the individual parts on its own. And that's why I think you see this big leap in win-loss ability, this big leap in production from Jimmy Garoppolo, who is also, you know, a pretty good quarterback capable of running that offense to Brock Purdy. The big difference is the way the Purdy strengths play into this offense.
0: So let me ask you a question. Then I think Shane wants to jump in. Let me ask you a question. I was Which... just going to comment on those oh. turnover-worthy
1: plays and Jimmy Garoppolo, man. That guy was the king of the turnover-worthy play. <laughs>
0: Let me, let me ask you a question. Maybe it, it keeps getting bad. Maybe Adi's point about putting things on a common metric has, has stuck into my head, and I keep thinking about this. Let's say everybody plays at pro football focus's expectation, except Patrick Mahomes plays at expectation, which is great. And Brock Purdy plays at the 90th percentile of the distribution, what pro football focus thinks his quality is. Does San Francisco win the game? Like, in other words, if I just told you right now, however good you think playoff Mahomes is, I'll even give you playoff Mahomes, and however yeah. good you think playoff Purdy is, Mahomes plays average playoff Mahomes, but Purdy plays in the upper end of his distribution. Does San Francisco win the game?
3: Yeah, I think they probably do, but I think they need that for the, to win the game. Well, that's what so I was I gonna,
0: uh, going to Keep going. That's what I was going to ask you.
3: I think that really is the key for the 49ers. Like, this is the best defense that's ever been paired with Patrick Mahomes. Playoff Mahomes looks to be a real thing. Playoff Kelsey might be a real thing. Andy Reid with, you know, two weeks to game plan, I think, is a real thing as well. Even though it's it's no longer the perfect record that it once was that people would always bring up, it's still a pretty phenomenal record when Andy Reid has got some time to work uh, and, and and game plan for somebody. So I think you're going to get the best version of the Chiefs or something pretty close to it. Um, I think you can definitely argue that overall San Francisco is a, is a better team, but they need the most important element of that team, Brock Purdy, to play at something like his best level for that to be able to keep pace with what I think will be a better version of the Chiefs than we've seen for most of this year. I think the Chiefs can afford you know some part of that, not necessarily to fire or to just be average, and they'll still be at right there. The 49ers need they can't have Brock Purdy playing the way he did against Green Bay, the way he did against Detroit for you know most of the game. They need him to be playing the way he was playing earlier in the season, where he was absolutely cooking relative to, to his overall kind of distribution curve. Do
0: you have any thoughts about Shane even talked about this about strategy? Like, for example, if you're Kansas City, I'm sorry, San Francisco in this game do you just try to run the ball until they prove they can stop the ball? I mean, one advantage is you have a good running back. You have a bunch of good running backs. You have a very good offensive line. Kansas City's been somewhat vulnerable to the rush, more so vulnerable to the rush than the pass. And every minute you're on the field is a minute Patrick Mahomes is not on the field. So if you're San Francisco, do you take a totally different strategy in this game? matter of fact, your goal is to win this game 17-14, not 35 to 31. You'll take either, but you you think there's a greater chance of winning at 1714 than 35-31. I'm just interested in your thoughts.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think if they're able to run the ball well, there's almost no team in the NFL that isn't in a better position to win if their run game is firing in all cylinders and they're, you know, rattling off four, five, six, seven yards to carry. It's it it works. It doesn't mean it's it's the best approach to just run into a game and try and run the ball at will, regardless of how it's going. But if they have the capacity to have a successful run game against the Chiefs, they're absolutely in a better position to win the game than they would have been if the Chiefs are able to stop the run without allocating extra resources to it. So, yeah, if Christian McCaffrey is a huge part of this game and that is successful and they don't need Brock Purdy to carry everything on offense and win the game passing, yeah, I I think their chances of winning that game goes up.
0: So let me ask you one more question about the game, and then I want to, uh, since we have you, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the NFL draft, and specifically there's one aspect of it I'd, I'd love your thoughts about. So who do you think wins the game? What Do you have any prediction of the score in the game? What do you think is going to happen in, in this game? And who's uh, the MVP I, of the game?
3: I think that the Chiefs win the game. Um, I'm kind of surprised that the line hasn't really moved. Everybody seems to be of the same opinion that We've done this a couple of weeks in a row already. We're not doing it again. I'm not betting against Patrick Mahomes as an underdog. We've it. It's it's not going to work. So everyone kind of seems to be agreeing on that. And yet the line staying where the line has been, and San Francisco is favorite. Um, I think the four. I think the, the Chiefs will win. I think they'll. will get a better version. I think Mahomes will be MVP if they win. Um, I do think it'll be a shootout, though. I think there'll be a lot of points in this game. I think both defenses are good, but. I, I don't know that the that the 49ers are going to stop a relatively mistake-free Patrick Mahomes, and I think that 49ers' offense is good enough that they will be able to at least get close to keeping pace with the Chiefs.
0: So let me, I lied. I asked, I'm going to ask you one more question about the legacy for two players in this game, or two individuals. So three and one's a lot different than two and two. And so if Mahomes loses this game, he's two and two in the Super Bowl. It's not horrible. Nothing wrong. It's been to four Super Bowls in six years. That's still impressive. But three and one seems a lot different to me than two and two. So, And also, you yep. can also, on the flip side, Andy Reid, if they lose the game, he's two and three in the Super Bowl. That's starting to sound like, I don't know, was, wasn't Don Shula two and three in the Super Bowl? I don't know. I'm just making up a number. Wasn't Tom Landry like two and three in the Super Bowl? I'm not saying they weren't great coaches. But if one's talking about all time, Well, Bill Belichick wasn't two and three in the Super Bowl. Belichick was what, six and two? Do I have the right? Six and two? I think he's got to be six and two sounds right, or six and three.
1: Uh, I mean, you're only counting as a head coach. Head coach. Yeah, six and three.
0: Yeah. So what do you think about this game, Sam, for the legacy of Mahomes and the legacy of Andy Reid?
1: Yeah,
3: I I mean, it's important. Obviously, it's a Super Bowl. And the way... The way the world works, we define people still by these Super Bowls, however silly that may be. And two is already, it's like a validating number, right? Peyton Manning is arguably one of the top three quarterbacks of all time. And and you're generously
0: giving you're generously giving him two. I know he's got two, but the second one, I was the quarterback. He
1: that. was he was well. He was two and two in the Super Bowl too. I think, right? Right. But that second
3: right. one gave his career that validation. Right? It didn't matter that he was sort of a passenger towards the end of it, and that he like like John Elway. John Elway's career was validated by those Super Bowls at the end where he he's was, two and three. He was zero and three, right? Where he was a passenger, and it was everything else let him win those Super Bowls. And when he was at his best. The rest of the team wasn't good enough and he couldn't win them. But getting those championships at the end, people forget how they came about. So Mahomes has already crossed that sort of validation line of the two Super Bowls. Now he's in this pathway of we forget because of Tom Brady, or it's really easy to forget how hard it is to win any of them, which is why the second one becomes validating. If Mahomes wins this one and he's won three and he's now won 50 percent of the Super Bowls in the time he's been starting a quarterback. Now he's on this Brady pathway of he could be the new benchmark of, you know, what if he wins eight? What if he wins nine? What if he you know finishes his career with this number that never seemed plausible? If he loses, he's still past the kind of validation line. But now maybe we end up with a Joe Montana type career, right, where he plays the whole time. He's always in contention, but he only, quote unquote, gets four rings, right? And Brady still we still end up de- declaring Brady as the greatest of all time because he ended up with seven, and Mahomes, as great as he was, showed how hard it is to win these things and could only come away with four. So I think it has the potential to change, you know, the narrative on his on his career, even if it doesn't change the substance of it. Same with Andy Reid. I mean, you know, if he wins another one, it's it's yet more validation. We start to hear him talked about as one of the greatest head coaches of all time. If he doesn't, then he's just another great coach who needed Patrick Mahomes to win a couple of championships.
0: Yeah, I mean, neither Shane nor I is unhappy that uh, the Buccaneers beat the Chiefs. So they, By the way, that's the that's the thing I'm happy about. We can never say, well, I can never answer the question if Brady played Mahomes in the Super Bowl. No, they played in the Super Bowl, and Brady, a 40, I'll make it up, three-year-old Tom Brady, they blew him out.
1: And yeah, so- I mean, Brady's two of I think Mahomes only lost like three times in the playoffs, and two of them have been Brady. Right,
0: Brady the other one's Burrow. Joe Burrow. Yeah, yeah. Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow. So let's spend a few minutes that we have left with you, Sam. Again, we're talking to Sam Monson. Uh, Sam is one of the core members of PFF. He's the lead NFL analyst. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. Um, Let's talk about the draft. How do you see this year's draft? I mean, people are talking about, especially at the quarterback position, as being one of those transformative drafts with Caleb Williams, Drake May, now people are even saying, I can't even believe I'm saying this guy's name because he was awful, but Bo Nix, I mean, I don't know. He was awful. He was awful. The new Bo Nix, the Auburn Bo Nix was terrible. But you know, there's maybe, and, and people are even talking about five, six, seven quarterbacks going in the first couple rounds. How do you see it? Do you see this as the classic escalation of quarterbacks that always happen? Or do you actually think we may have two or three transformative, let's call them franchise quarterbacks in the draft?
3: I think Caleb Williams is definitely in that category. I think he could be special. I think his ability, his uh, potential, his capacity, the things that he can do are very Mahomesy. and you're going to see a lot of those comparisons. Uh, His arm is exceptional. He's incredibly athletic. He is also capable of doing the, you know, can you work within the confines of a regular offense? Can you throw just on time, in rhythm, without creating and without extending the play, without all doing all that kind of thing? So I think Williams is in that kind of category, and he should be the number one overall pick. The rest, I think, sounds more like that annual thing of, we need quarterbacks, we're going to start pushing them up in the draft. And it's also very difficult to tell. I mean, the uh, 2021 class, the Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, uh, Trey Lance, that class seemed special at the time, right? Everyone pretty much loved all five of those quarterbacks. They were very different. But they were all very, very good prospects. And right now, the only one of them that looks viable, or, or you know, high level, is Trevor Lawrence. And even he hasn't really lived up to that. You know, the best prospect since Peyton Manning, since Andrew Lewis, Luck, John Elway. Yeah, like he. Those are the three. He was. It was Andrew Luck in twenty twelve. If it was, if he went back before him. It was Peyton Manning in 98, and if it was before that, it was John Elway in, in 83 or whenever that was. So yeah, that was what he was billed as, and he's been good. He hasn't been at that level yet. So I think it's always hard to tell with quarterbacks, but I do think this looks like a good quarterback year with a special number one.
0: So let me ask you one last question also. If you are the um, Chicago Bears and you have the number one pick, well, so far I don't have to say anything. You are If the Chicago Bears have the number one pick, do they dump Justin Fields or do you and and drop Caleb Williams? Given your belief and many people's belief that's a transformative quarterback, or do you stay with Justin Fields? Maybe you can get a Herschel Walker like load for this pick. Get right. four or five number one picks or three or four number ones and number twos. You you know you're okay with Justin Fields. You know you can be a good team, but let's build around him. What do you do if you're the number one pick?
3: And that's always the missing piece of the puzzle from the outside, right? It's it's what does that trade look like? Um, from in terms of as an abstract concept, I would move on from Justin Fields. I think we I don't think we've seen enough yet to be confident that he is going to be the guy in a year's time that you hand a $50 million a year contract to. He might get there. I, I'm not saying he can't be, but I don't think you can be confident in that right now, at which point I would push the reset button. I would go get the new guy. The contract starts over again, and, and I would go in that direction.
0: But, suppose, by the suppose, way, well, like, this is what I heard this morning on a you know ESPN and stuff. Suppose you're the commanders at number two who right. just hired, I forget, whoever their offensive coordinator is, the guy that was Caleb Williams' coach. At like Kingsbury. Yeah, Kingsbury. Suppose the number two team says, we'll give you number two pick and a couple of number ones to move up. And you're like, you know what? Maybe Drake May's better than him. Would you do right. that?
3: Um, I think there's a big drop-off, so I, w- I wouldn't be keen on that. If I was moving in that direction, if I was taking that deal, I think I would be sticking with fields rather than going to Drake May or the next guy down the rung. But that's the variable, right? I haven't I haven't fielded the phone calls. I don't know what's being offered. Right. And what's being offered changes depending on how far down the draft you're going, right? So it's it's a very movable feast. But my default position would be if I'm Chicago, I'm using this pick until somebody gives me a deal that's too good to turn down, you know, where I decide, okay, that changes the math. Now I think we're better off taking this all. Even if I need to pay Justin Fields, $50 million a year next year, I think I'm getting so much value in young draft talent that are going to be on their rookie contracts. We, we always think about it in terms of the rookie qu- contract for the quarterback because that's the best value, right? If you Brock Purdy has the best value contract in the NFL because he's the last pick of the draft and he's playing the most important position. So those two things together make him the most valuable contract in the entire NFL. So that's what everybody's chasing. But if you had the quarterback on a, a giant contract, but you've got six new rookie contract players that are making an impact for you, that might add up to the same level. Right, that might be fine, too. spread across different players.
0: Right. Well, Sam, I'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been joined by Sam Monson. Sam is one of the core members of PFF the lead NFL analyst there, co-host PFF NFL podcast and the PFF NFL daily show. It's a great friend to us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thank you, Sam, for joining us here today on Wharton Moneyball.
3: Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: And thank you for joining us from Las Vegas and from uh, the media station and Radio Row. So, guys, this has been an hour of Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, Shane Jensen, and Audie Weiner, some combination of us and Cade Massey are here every week on Morton Moneyball. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer, Dion Simpkins, who makes all of this possible. Uh, between now and next week, enjoy the Super Bowl, enjoy your sports, and we'll see you next week here on Morton Moneyball.